Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. We are back in the Detroit is Different podcast studios after the 4th of July. And uh, this is a very unique episode being that um, America uh, definitely has had its troubles, especially with people that are not of Germanic, French or English roots. Uh, historically, uh, it's been tough. But the principles and the Constitution for where America stands and how it stands is one of those things that was uh, trickled down from many different ethics of Roman traditions, Greek traditions, which really were taken from a lot of Egyptian traditions of uh, what democracy is, uh, how democracy exists, uh, how people interact, uh, how to build a society together and what voice the people have. And like many of these great dynasties, when we think of the Roman Empire, when we think of the Greek Empire, even when we think of a lot of the Egyptian empires, uh, historically, we look over time and many of these empires or the British Empire, I guess that's the last one that they'd say fail or Russia. Um, <laughs> the fall and the demise of many things come from the people themselves and uh, where people stand. Uh, I give this long introduction because somebody that stands with the people on right now what seems to be the, the, the critical issue of humanity moving forward. And that issue is water and where water stands in America and also internationally uh, as uh, the tragedy of the Holocaust that's going on in Flint connected to our current uh, gubernatorial uh, cabinet or team, however you want to look at it. Uh, it's, it's a bigger challenge than even just Governor Snyder alone. Uh, I definitely think a lot of the responsibility bears at his feet, but not just with him, but so many others as water is becoming more and more of a precious commodity uh, and the water that can be used due to the way we as humans have uh, <laughs> have treated water. Uh, it has not necessarily um, in the abundance that it once was generations ago. So today, someone for the first time, a guest on Piper's podcast on the Detroit is Different Network and the Detroit is Different podcast happens. You're, you're the first. You're like, uh, you are the, uh, I don't even know what, what that first person is. But, but the, the inaugural. The inaugural, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> representative. All yes. right. All right, up um, in the stew. So, Monica Lewis-Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm incredible. I'm incredible and just honored to be here with you and, and uh, just a pinch me moment to realize I'm the first. So thank you for that. Yeah. Between both podcasts, you are the first. All it's right. going to be some people that spill over and uh, cross, but you're the first person. I and should. when we were on Piper's podcast, I was like, I got to have you come on. Detroit is different. It's a different flow. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of information because that's just 
who you are, but what's the backstory? What's Monica Lewis Patrick's life like? Mm. So first, your ties and your family's ties to Detroit. What led you to the city? Yes, well, I came to the city of Detroit in 2008. I moved here in 2008 mm-hmm. uh, after I had seen a... Uh, uh, been downsized from my job. I had just, my youngest daughter had been dropped off on my doorstep and left and abandoned. And I was going through a divorce and just finished grad school. And mm. so uh, turning 40 and having all of these convergences happen at the same time, I felt like it was a moment for me to declare my independence and uh, and freedom. And I had always wanted to live in Detroit as an adult, but had never had the opportunity uh, or never saw the opportunity. And so I took advantage of it. Okay, now that is unique as I've known you for a while. So it's almost like I met you when you first got here. When I first and got I here. And I never even put two and two together. Where were you coming from? Well, I was coming from a small town in northeast Tennessee called Kingsport. Uh, it how, is, when you say small, how many people? Uh, about 44,000. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, and you have uh, the international home of Eastman Chemical Company there. Uh, at one point, it was the national offices of Mead, uh, many industrial uh, elements there. It was also the home of Eastman Chemical Company's connection to uh, Holston Defense, which built the nuclear bomb. Huh. Uh, and so we uh, often, you know, had this looming threat of disaster and harm because of being noted for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also my family is the Horton family. My grandfather's the seventh oldest brother of Willie Horton, the baseball player. Uh, and then also his twin sister, my Aunt Faye, was married to Dr. Julius Griffin, who uh, we call him Uncle Toby. Uh, was the uh, He was part of uh, the team for the SCLC that uh, served Dr. Martin Luther King as a speechwriter. Uh, he was also a part for Barry Gardy when he started doing the Spoken Word series. He was the person that he dubbed to actually coordinate that series. And then from there, he became Barry Gordy's uh, vice president of public relations for about 25 years. Hmm. And so uh, we consider ourselves a granddaughter of the city of Detroit. And so we never saw ourselves separate from what was happening in Detroit. It was nothing for my grandfather to put 13 grandchildren in a station wagon and drive us to Detroit. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, we wake up and we're crossing the city line. And he say, wake up, Hordens, because the Horton name means something in Detroit. And so uh, I've always had a, a deep love and admiration for the city. Uh, but coming in 2008, uh, at a time where I uh, had come from a long legacy, my mom was a community organizer and a, a labor union representative. She also uh, served the military for 24 years as a master sergeant. She still, at 73 years old, can be called up by the U.S. Army because of the unique MOS that she has. Uh, and then she worked for the Veterans Administration for 35 years. And so, what, what labor union? What union? Uh, American Federation of Government Employees. Hmm. And so we've so, walked picket lines. Uh, we've been a part of protest. And this was like, and um, and there's so many questions I got already. The the question I generally ask always is, what do people think? But your family was already familiar with Detroit. Oh gosh, yeah, we and, were we were a part of Detroit. And how? And when I think Tennessee, I naturally think Memphis. No, and I think, I think blues. Yes, yes. I, and, and I think, uh, as I say that, that that knee smack music. 
<laughs> hey, that that's that hard working. That it yeah. always reminds me of, of railroads and coal mining. Yes. But uh, you know, in in the state of Tennessee, it's a long state. I can actually travel from my home in Tennessee, Northeast Tennessee, to Memphis, and I can get to Detroit quicker from my home than I can to the other end of of Tennessee, where mm-hmm. Memphis is. Fifty seven percent of the African American population in Tennessee lives in Shelby County, where Memphis is. Where I am from, uh, about 1.2% of the population is people of color. Wow. So we grew up in a dynamics where we were often uh, perceived as a minority, but because our family was so large and our connection to what we saw was struggle and the black power movement, we never saw ourselves as less than or a minority. But but also being like so few black people in that, in that area, like if you... You know what I'm saying? Like, if, if it was, like, 10 o'clock at night and you walking around, they're like, I know who your mama is. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. <laughs> till this day. Till this day. Uh, till this day. It's like you can't. But you also had some major uh, social movement resistance going on in, in my small town. There were race riots hmm. in 76. Uh, there was an incident where uh, black girls were not allowed to try out for the cheerleading squad. And there were only less than 300 black students out of a school of about 3,000. Mm-hmm. And they were able to mobilize and activate some of their white uh, allies mm-hmm. and uh, basically address race in a very aggressive and violent way. Mm-hmm. And out of that, you had us on lockdown and under martial law for almost a month. Wow. Uh, a lot of people don't know in t- the state of Tennessee, we were the last state to fully implement uh, integration in terms of public education. Uh, my ex-husband did his thesis on the issue, and what we found is that uh, in the t- the years of 2000, you only have seven teachers, where when you had your own school system, you actually had 67 educators in your community. Mm. And so with those kinds of dynamics, black children are seeing less and less people of color uh, in my hometown in positions of power and leadership. Hmm. Uh, even to this day? Oh, this day, it's more so. Because now you don't have the power structure. One of the things that happened is they lost property. Uh, Even historic buildings were condensed into uh, now uh, community centers for the elite and for those that Eastman Chemical Company are moving in. That's why when I moved to Detroit in 2009, the first thing I told uh, Deborah Taylor when I saw that Dave Bing was running, I said, oh, gentrification is coming on steroids. Hmm. Uh, I saw it very clearly uh, with that election and then after working the election. Okay, now, um, a couple other things. You you talked about your mother being in the union as um, the union, the, the roots of the union, especially in Detroit. It's, uh, it's, it's very much romanticized in some ways. Um, but let, let's be explicit. The, the, the start of the unions was really the fact that uh, at one point in time, uh, many, many corporations wanted to hire black workers. Mm-hmm. So white workers unionized to keep black workers from working. Yes. <laughs> now, that was the first, like, I guess, um, exclusionary tactic of the union. Mm-hmm. The second exclusionary tactic of the union was men organizing against women yes so being that your mother was a black woman working in the unions 
what did she talk about what she was facing just because it, it, I'm guessing that the time and the era was probably uh, 60s, 70s where that was unprecedented. Well, I, I think coming out of a union family that was a part of coal mining uh, mm-hmm. in the late 40s and early 50s in West Virginia, because that's where we have our roots. Hmm. Uh, our family were uh, a key part. My great-grandfather, who actually moved to Detroit in 1952, uh, because the unions uh, uh, had been suppressed in West Virginia and there had been a major loss in jobs. And so the auto industry, of course, was on the upswing. But one of the things that happened is that there was also an influx. They were using prison labor from Brushy Mountain Prison in Tennessee to actually bust up the unions. And so this is when unions began to uh, understand that it would be better to align themselves and bring black more black men in than it would be to allow them to be undercut by prison labor. And mm-hmm. so this is where we saw ourselves deeply rooted in that struggle because my great-grandfather and his brothers were a part of that struggle, those fights, those deaths, carrying men uh, out of the mines while at the same time having to fight the men to get in the mines to go to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But then for my mom, right before she retired after 34 years, almost 35 years with the Veterans Administration, she had served as a union steward at the national level. As a matter of fact, her last tenure as a union steward at the national level was under the leadership of Charles Barkley's father, hmm. uh, whom she had major differences with. He was a staunch, uh, deeply staunchly committed to Republican values, uh, often very much uh, repressive of women in leadership. And anybody that knows anything about my mother, she is no one to challenge or temper with. But the union president actually... Uh, Right before she retired, she was a part of exposing that her union president had been a part of suppressing not only uh, several elections that would have put more minorities into leadership, but she had actually targeted my mother and did several things that would have caused my mother to actually have a criminal charge against her because the Veterans Administration operates as a city within itself. Uh, It's called Mountain Home. So it has its own police department, fire department, and everything. And one of the things this lady did is she also planted, uh, had a person plant snakes, uh, two snakes, poisonous snakes, in another person who had been an officer's car. And so all of this information got exposed through the it federal. Sounds like uh, that, that snakes on a plane movie or something. Oh, it's bananas! Yeah, but you had uh, three weird. federal. You had three federal agents through the FBI because of my mother's uh, documentation and experience in the military in filing these kind of federal grievances. She was able to expose this issue, and mm-hmm. it's actually still pending in terms of litigation uh, to resolve the harm that was done. Yeah. But it was 57 people that were actually brought up on charges. Yeah. And, yeah, as, as snakes on a plane are funny. I just know when a bee is in the car, I'm tripping. Yes. So I can only imagine what a snake in the car would have a person flip out. Oh, God, yeah. Two poisonous snakes. And what made them know it had to be a plant is these these breeds do not uh, intersect with one another. Mm. So to have them together, they knew that it had to be a plant. Mm. Uh, but a lot of this was exposed uh, through the, the depositions. A lot of people had been threatened because, like I said, it has its own police force. So the police chief actually was brought up on charges. He had been a part of this cover-up mm. and this intimidation. Uh, but you're talking about the same woman 
who uh, served in the Persian Gulf War and was a part of bringing down her commander who had actually uh, gotten them lost 15 miles with behind the Iraqi lines. And you can go back and look at a film clip on CNN where Senator Sasser from Tennessee challenged Dick Cheney when Dick Cheney said that all of the military had been home. And Senator Sasser told him that he was a damn lie because the 912 mass unit from Tennessee had not returned. My mother was a part of that unit. Uh, she was also in the explosion in Bahrain where you had 52 Brits killed. Uh, mm. So, like I said, you take a uh, no-nonsense, uh, tried-and-true uh, black woman who has been through the hardest of times of labor organizing, who has been to war, who has been through divorce, and who has raised four children on her own. Uh, I would put anybody up against uh, retired Master Sergeant Sonora Lewis. With your mom's is seeming very fascinating at this point in time on, on so many levels um because of the the errors uh that she's doing this uh, being in the military even to this day yes. for a woman is very uh difficult uh one of my like i guess like girlfriends in high school or whatever um served two tours of duty in iraq mm, and wow. um and that struggle with PTSD since like, you know, and yeah. visiting somebody in the psych ward or the veterans memorial is a whole nother reality. Yes. And she's in a premise every time I visited her. Yes. Where she's okay. Yes. But some of the stuff I see, like, you know, I had to, you know, I've never, I've never experienced it. Like I had to take off my belt. I had to take off my phone, any pins. I had to like, they, it was certain words they said you can't say this i was like damn i don't even triggers you know mm -hmm. and i you know and people of all ages from young to old so i'm sure probably some veterans from korea like my grandfather to people in iraq mm -hmm. half of my mother's unit uh that was my age my siblings age so the age of her children all of those people that she was a part of recruiting are dead Mm. Over half of her unit. And the younger ones died quicker than the older ones. So in, in this whole um, just reality of 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 seeing uh, more, you know, mortality uh, as as I was definitely a big anti-war person. And then I've, I've talked to more soldiers that have served and they they kind of break it down like, look, man, when you're over there, you're not really thinking about the politics of it all. You just kind of build the camaraderie of the person, you know, next to you That's right. per se. So uh, with these close knit relationships and then still keeping a family together, what has been your mother's perspective when it comes to um, relationships and connecting with people, especially seeing now her daughter uh, do a lot of work that can put you in, I don't want to say harm's way, but harm's way. Um, well, my mother always talked to us from the standpoint, and I guess, you know, with her being in the military so long and much of our childhood, uh, she's a person that operates in principles and honor. She lives by the honor code. Uh, she believes you do right just for right's sake. You don't do it because people are watching or to be acknowledged. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And I think because that's her value system, that's always been how she's expected us to operate. Uh, not saying that I think we've always measured up 
but I know that the the measuring stick has always been present. Hmm. And so this expectation that you give back, that you have a debt that you owe, that people have sacrificed for you to uh, even have the privileges that you have. And a lot of her conversation was not so much about patriotism. Uh, that was never her lens. Uh, it was always about God and family hmm. for her. And her motives for going to war was because when my father got back from Vietnam, he was a shell of the man that he was. Hmm. And so he became addicted to heroin and uh, uh, abandoned the family after returning from war about five years later. So my mother went from being a housewife, a stay-at-home mom, to quickly being thrust into the work environment, uh, pregnant with my brother, uh, and then began nursing school about six months after my brother mm -hmm. was born. And so nursing became uh, an avenue of upward mobility for our household uh, because she could basically make a livable wage caring mm -hmm. for us. But it was always a reminder that uh, if not for the grace of God, there go I. And that because of our family and the strong family network, uh, that we had all that we needed within that network. And so I think believing that, you know, my grandmother had a phrase that she would tell us all the time that if you eat bis biscuits and gravy, you're just as full as the man that ate steak. Mm. And uh, and so she talked that to That is a, a southern saying. If oh, it, ever was. it is. It is. But think about the power of it. The power of it like is what it. she was telling us is that we don't lack anything. And comparing ourselves to someone else that like we perceive it. as having something, a lot of times you'll miss what you have. And she was this great, uh, I would consider a theologian, but also community organizer. Uh, when they shut down our community pool where black kids could no longer go to the swimming pool in our small town to force the revenue toward the white pool to sustain it, my grandmother took all 13 grandchildren downtown and made us sit all day with her while she bullied the mayor into hmm. giving her the keys to the pool. Hmm. My grandmother couldn't swim. <laughs> and he put her over the pool, and she ran the pool for eight years. Uh, she got about 12 young brothers uh, trained as lifeguards. They mm. had never had uh, had them a part of the Red Cross training before until she came. She was part of the network of black women that then went through training uh, through, the, uh, through the first aid of, uh, of the American Red Cross to then become the mothers in our schools, in the clinics so that our mothers had a presence, our grandmothers had a presence. So Pinky Lee was a fireball, honey. Mm. I mean, she's unmatched in terms of how she could take a church, and by the time she get finished, I don't care what the preacher was talking about. If there was an issue in the community, she was going to have those people mobilized and organized and showing up somewhere. Mm. Deep, deep. So this all kind of goes into also with your, with your grandfather, these trips to Detroit. Yeah. So what was, do you remember your first trip to Detroit? Oh my gosh. Whew. I think the first trip that I remember was, uh, my uncle Willie owned a club, uh, a nightclub. And there may even be a picture that somebody put up on Facebook, but he, he let all of the teenagers come over. And I was like, maybe, you know, the younger one. Of oh, the so group. you were like the, you I were was like, like the 10. One. You were like the one, they were like, oh, why yeah. is she got to come? Not really, though, because uh, each cousin has a favorite cousin. Uh -huh. And so we, we call each other sister cousins, brother cousins. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so you always had a northern cousin that sort of would take you under their uh -huh. wing and make sure it was cool that you got to yeah, go yeah, places. Yeah. And so we got to go. We went skating. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, then my grandfather took us over because my uncle had a game that day. So we went mm-hmm. over to Tiger Stadium. Wow. And, of course, him and his brothers were up in the stadium, you know, drinking mm-hmm. moonshine out of mason jars. Nah, that's because I get up. Oh yeah, oh yeah, but it was so but much fun. Old Tiger Stadium was oh, probably gosh, a, yeah. a BYOB kind of. Oh, place. it really was. I'm saying like they had bags of sandwiches and stuff. This is this is how throwback it was. And my uncle you had get, he was giving us all denied. of the stuff. Yeah. You were oh not going no. To Comerica Park with your old beat, with your old Well, flask. we shook Comerica Park up a little bit when about 500 Horton showed up for the statue unveiling. They were not ready for these folks. And my uncle's, of course, telling telling Mr. Elliot Snell that, you know, well, Willie's all right, but I could really play. Oh, <laughs> you know, so. You know, it's a it's a story Isaiah Thomas was saying his rookie year when he was in the, uh, when he got in the league, he was like, my mama was bringing chicken to the Game. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, like, I'm sure. I'm sure they probably had chicken in the in the limousine. I tell you, they probably had had it in there. I was like, Mama, it's Well, you get eighteen Hortons. I mean, that's how many eighteen That's how many siblings it was. Mm. Uh, and and you've got what uh, at least four sets of twins. Wow. So, you know, a huge family like that. My Uncle Willie grew up with my mom. He grew up more like a sibling with my mother. Mm. Uh, My grandparents actually uh, took care of him until he was nine, and then he moved to Detroit with my grandparents. Mm. But my grandparents had grandchildren the age of him. Wow. Now... This is the thing, uh, because he's a Willie Horton's definitely shout out to my high school, Northwestern, uh, Northwestern guy. Uh, they actually just renamed the uh, you know, the the new ballpark, uh, it's in Willie Horton's honor, um, old Tiger Stadium, as they say, yeah, uh, that Powell's doing, but uh. It, now, as you're telling this story, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Joe Lewis's story as I'm kind of connected to some of that Barrow family. Okay. Yeah. Of when a person does uh, come north and quote unquote make it. Okay. Now you still send back and work with and, and support the family of the roots that still exist. Yeah. So those brothers and sisters and then I guess even extending like his cousins that grew up like brothers and sisters. Uh, what role did uh, did Willie play in the lives of everybody else? I would say, you know, it it, it brought a lot of pride, I think, to a family coming out of coal mining and struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got to think, my grandparents, the house that he brought, that bought my grandparents that sits right next door to the Ford family's uh, home over in Boston Edison, uh, that house was the first house that they ever owned. Wow, and and it was shortly after that that they were killed in the car accident, um, mm. and so uh, knowing that kind of struggle, uh, my grandmother used to talk about hiding pots of beans and greens under the bed to make sure that everybody could eat because they ate in shifts because the older kids were working and the younger kids were still at home, and so when they would get out of school, uh, some of the folks that worked in the mines would already be home, and so she cooked in shifts. Uh, one of my uncles talks about he never uh, saw my grandmother not in the kitchen, except when she was going to church mm. uh, with that many people to care for. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, it's out of that kind of labor and hard work uh, that I really try to honor and respect what that meant. But I think Uncle Willie, uh, for us, uh, was the embodiment of the 
of the great American story of success. You know, and, and I in the times meeting him at Northwestern, he's very silent when I've met him. Like he's not like a very um, gregarious attitude or anything like that. Almost to the fact like you have to know that that's Willie Horton to know Willie Horton's right there. You know, so was uh, so I can only imagine uh, his brothers and sisters have to be a lot more like just. Oh, man, they, these personalities are bigger than life. And uh, I think they're all of them took a lot of uh, pride when he came back home to Virginia. Mm. I brought him back to Tennessee and Virginia uh, in I would say the mid 90s uh, leading up to the late. Yeah. For about seven years, mm-hmm. we coordinated something called the Willie Horton Baseball for Kids Benefit down south. Wow. And we did three days of activities to raise funds to make sure that children had what they needed to return to school with school supplies and adequate clothing. And so we were preparing them with all their school supplies and a week's worth of clothing. Mm-hmm. And out of that grew uh, not only the Willie Horton Baseball for Kids event, but then the governors of Tennessee and Virginia began to battle over who Willie belonged to. Hilarious. And out of that, what came to pass was they created a wall of fame in Virginia that sits on the state lines of Tennessee and Virginia, hmm. where they are acknowledging his work, uh, not only in, in terms of being a legendary sports figure, but also the work that he's done as a humanitarian. Hmm. Uh, he has led several teams in Venezuela to international baseball championships. He was there during the civil unrest in Venezuela and was a major part of calming that dis-ease. Uh, he has been an international baseball ambassador, so globally he has gone to China and Korea and just all over the world uh, promoting baseball as a way to acknowledge that we're all human and how can we use sports to bring us together. And then he was acknowledged in, um, I want to say around 2010, uh, by the U.S. military for his humanitarian work Mm. on behalf of veterans because he has so many siblings Mm -hmm. uh, and nieces and nephews that have served during the Persian Gulf War. I'm sure your mom played uh, some influence in that. Well, it was actually my cousin Paul who who, uh, had played semi-pro basketball and then joined the military. And because of his Mm. deep relationships with many pro athletes around the country, uh, I don't know if people know a lot about uh, the Sensiball boys that many of them that play pro ball uh, Gerald Sensiball and Cody Sensiball, mm-hmm. uh, all of those guys came off of my block uh, mm. down in Tennessee. And so a lot of times they are brought in to give back to that. Uh, but I would say for us, uh, Uncle Willie has been the impedi- the embodiment of not only what it means to be a part of a family, but I think what it means to be a part of a community. Because it's Detroit mm-hmm. that has loved on him and continued to make sure that his legacy was secured here. And uh, <clears throat> while facing all the pressure of so much attention uh, and celebrity and fame and focus uh, of people, you know, worship celebrities in, in seeking the opportunity to, um, to I guess, uh, explore what they feel as though will give them fulfillment in life. And, uh, you know, that's that's powerful, which kind of leads me into the next point of interest of you said it was always a dream to be here in detroit yes but now you 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 2008 when when did it come clear that i'm gonna live in detroit uh in january uh january the 7th 
of 2008, I was uh, dismissed from my job. Hmm. I had managed uh, eight counties of Northeast Tennessee psychiatric response services, and it was a very intense job. And it really at first was heartbreaking because I saw it as failure, and then shortly after that I recognized that it really was God uh, allowing me to be released. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ended up in a legal battle with them that I won uh, because of the unlawful dismissal. But at that time, I had already made up my mind that I was going to move to Detroit. I wanted a a fresh start. I wanted to at least be in a space where uh, I felt like that I would be able to connect to uh, what I still saw was black power. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I saw is still culture. I wanted to expose my children after coming out of HBCU. I wanted to expose my children to more culture. Mm-hmm. Um, little did I know uh, that getting here, I knew what was going on around land and around voting uh, disenfranchisement. Had no idea how decimated the school systems were. Mm. And so I was only here six months before I was quickly in the throes of the fight against mayoral control. Now, as as we talk about that, it, it, it I had an interview with Roderick Miller uh, that uh, led the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, and he's from um, small southern town as well. Um, and he just talked about like how he sees not even necessarily the racism and the discrimination, but just the I guess submissive attitude. I'm 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 surmising this mm-hmm. of a lot of black people to not really want to stand up the way he'd even see down south sometimes. Oh yeah, what? What was, because uh, even when my cousins to this day come from other cities, they're like, man, there's so many black people here. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like one of the first things they always say. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you take it for granted when you live here. But that's right. And you, you were visiting. But moving here is different than visiting. Oh, yeah. So moving here, what, what was standing out as far as like, not just, let's just say the, what, what stood out about the leadership in Detroit? as you moved here? Well, I think one of the things that I saw quickly is there were several uh, what I would consider grassroots leaders that were exhibiting leadership mm-hmm. uh, that I could respect and I felt like was providing the right analysis and direction. Uh, you, you have to also remember we still had the Michigan citizens, mm-hmm. so we still had a narrative being shaped uh, from a people uh, Detroiter frame, mm-hmm. uh, black folk frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that to me was still an intact component that was powerful. Uh, you still were seeing, visibly seeing, the semblance of some clergy and some uh, labor leadership exhibiting some at least lip service to the right issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I might have been deceived by that a little bit, thinking that it was power when it will, really was posturing. But at the time, I saw it as uh, these voices were speaking a narrative of power and liberation that I wanted to be a part of contributing to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But shortly after being here for a period of time, uh, would you say months? Would you say a year? It was months. It wasn't even a. It wasn't even a year. Full twelve. No. Okay. (laughs) No. Uh, Quickly, what happened is that uh, one is I began to work on the issue around. Uh, what was happening 
with the election. And so worked on the barrel campaign against Dave Bing. Uh, worked also on the recount because I was we were seeing some inconsistencies, and so we were a part of challenging that mm-hmm. that election. Uh, then quickly within that process, we worked on uh, pushing back against mayoral control because this is where we saw that they were eroding the rights of parents to have a say in their children's education. And so many of the women that I work with today, I didn't know before then. I met them in this process of just mothers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles showing up, fighting for their children's right and their say in their children's education. And Deborah Taylor, who's uh, my best friend and business partner, uh, the media could not accept that this was just residents coordinating this in this fashion because this was five weeks of vigilance on our part. Mm -hmm. This was us showing up every day holding court in city council meetings and taking up all the time for public comment. I mean, Mm -hmm. just commandeering the meetings. And so one of the media asked, who are you? You have to be a group. And Deborah said, we are the people of Detroit. Mm -hmm. We are the people. And that Mm -hmm. name stuck. And so they began to call us, oh, those are the we the people people. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) yeah, and it was more dismissive than it was uh, affirming. Uh, But for us, we took it in an affirming way and began to call upon our own power Shortly after that, Councilmember Joanne Watson uh, dubbed Deborah and I to come on staff. And so mm-hmm. we served her uh, honorably uh, for about three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then she asked me in 2013, along with 11 other community elders, to run for city council in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our work was initially just around that particular issue and not seeing people connect the dots not seeing a thorough analysis. And then one of the things I've learned uh, very quickly in Detroit is that folks, because of relationships, will allow people to continue to do things that are bad leadership uh, behaviors, but they'll forgive them because, you know, they went to Central High School with me or they went to Northern High School or they lived in my zone or whatever. And so without that being brought to the table, too, I think we're going to continue to miss it uh, and not say we can't forgive folks and give them a reentry back into community. But we can continue to let people just because they hold positions continue to provide bad analysis and bad leadership. Now, as we talk about that, this is still such a this is such a people driven city like, you know, and um Mama Watson even one time looked at me like, you know, how she'll sometimes give you a look like, what what you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm like, sometimes like, you know, is the issue bigger than the person? Because it's like, this is a very personal city, it seems like. Like, almost everything is like, well, you know, he used to, and he, and, you know, I've even heard stuff about me. And it's like, nah, I'm I'm independent in thought. You know, people that, um, you know, like, uh. Like even right now, and I just the the point, and that's still my brother in arms. I just don't agree with his point on the Kanye West uh, people in choosing to be enslaved. It's such a backwards point, and we still gotta come make amends and, and Reverend Bullock. But that's still my homie, right. you know, and that's my brother. But I can, I think is, you know, how do you feel about being able to disagree with the person? And due to your disagreeing with the person and wherever they're at saying things that you don't agree with. So now I can't align with you with my social capital because I, I, you know, I I still feel a a level of um, 
I still feel a level of responsibility to people that respect my point of view and perspective. And just because I have a personal relationship with you doesn't even mean that we can't possibly hang out. You still aren't someone I'm friendly with, but I can categorically disagree with you mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to your stances, especially when it comes to the frailty of where things stand with people and what we align ourselves with. I think that can happen with some people. Okay. Uh, but I'll give you an example. Um, in all the years that I've been in the city, I still have not seen, based on the amount of power and positioning that he wields, uh, enough good leadership from Wendell Anthony. Mm -hmm. So when I ran in 2013, my council member, who had been the first black woman to head up the largest NAACP in the country, uh, she invited. Let me say this too. When she you say invited. This. She invited me to come. Mm -hmm. I refused to come because I felt like that it would have, one, been a betrayal of Reverend, of, uh, Reverend Pinckney, mm -hmm. who was out front protesting. But I also, too, felt like that it would have been an affront to the people that was asking me uh, to take on leadership in the community. And the reason I say that is not because uh, I don't like him. I, don't, I think he probably is one of the greatest orators in the city right now. Mm -hmm. I think that he is uh, a brilliant man. But I question his allegiance and what he's committed to. Anytime you've got the school system in the position it's in and we're on national conversations about the decimation of our schools and we hear nothing coming out of the largest branch in the nation, uh, when you have water shutoffs to the degree that we have them, over 100,000 households, and you have nothing coming out of the largest chapter in the nation, Mm -hmm. And when you have uh, an illegal foreclosure that has forced over 100,000 households into foreclosure and you have nothing coming out of that leadership and we have to go around that leadership to national tables to get the support that we need to litigate and legislate these issues, then those issues are problematic. And so I can separate uh, thinking he's charismatic and, and brilliant and all of that from what I see as failed and flawed leadership. Hmm. I, the two points that I have, and, and I have a lot of points on Wendell Anthony, um, but one is just the Detroit NAACP. I think it's, it's a shame that that organization, which really, as far as the, the, the inner workings of it and all the work is done by women, and that when you walk in on that wall of all the executive directors that you see, and presidents, you only got one woman's face. Mm -hmm. and that organization has been around since basically the start of the NAACP. I think that's a shame. That's right. I think like it's such a and it's such a shame, but it's one of those things like it's like the pimp prostitute perspective of the women are doing the work, mm -hmm. you know, and I've and I've even sometimes seen that. Um, so I, I definitely am against that. But it kind of leads back to the Wendell Anthony thing of like, you know. His his alliances over the time, like, you know, I guess you can move further from the 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 heart of where it's at. Uh, the, the first time I remember really getting an idea of who Wendell Anthony was, was dealing with uh, uh, America's fights against apartheid. And then soon after, 
you know, I remember him. Uh, I didn't even know what apartheid was because I'm a kid. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's standing strong against apartheid. Uh, a place I used to get my car washed over on Dexter. It's closed now, like Dexter and Amherst, right next to Dexter Amherst Center. And they had like all this stuff. So I'm assuming the owner must have been a fellowship member. Just honoring the legacy of Wendell Anthony. So you mm-hmm. go there and get your car washed and you just read all of this stuff about what Wendell Anthony did and who he would walk with and stand with. And over time today, how I see his allegiance, um, you know, um, you know, rallying on behalf of Mayor Duggan, you know, statements like he's not the white mayor, he's the right mayor, which I'm not even necessarily against Duggan. But I think that being that he categorically, when Benny Napoleon was running, stood on some stance of like, you know, they're taking away black leadership, you know, all of that. And it's like so. In this four years, I guess, you know, keeping that big church, you know, um, keeping that big church, the the taste of like, you know, having a small child, having a wife that he has. I don't know. You know what I'm but saying? I'm not, I, I'm not mad at know. Wendell Anthony. My, but my job as a, what I consider to be a true community activist and advocate mm-hmm. is to be able to help my community draw an analysis as to where their power is being lent or leveraged against Mm -hmm. them and how to regain it and how to utilize it in a way that's serving them. So it wouldn't matter as much as I love my mama and I don't like nobody better than my mama. Mm -hmm. If she was in error, and I'll give you an example. Uh, In my hometown, Eastman Chemical Company bought up uh, all of the leadership of the NAACP Mm -hmm. and they've been controlling it for years. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, me and a couple of other young people decided that we were going to organize our community and make it more reflective of what we thought was a democratic community. And mm-hmm. we did this over the course of the summer. And we got those persons elected. And it was a mixture of age and gender and the likes. Well, my mother was voted in as uh, as a secretary, mm-hmm. an administrative secretary, executive secretary. Well, the pastor of the church actually was the one who was cavorting with Eastman to buy up these positions. Uh, I get a call from someone on the executive board saying everybody that was elected openly has now been removed and he has appointed Mm. people that Eastman Mm. likes to these Mm. positions. This was after we assured our community that their voice and their vote would matter because we had gone through 30 years of Eastman not being responsive to black men being taken in back rooms and stripped down and hosed down. Mm. They had not been responsive to black men being held in elevators and some of them assaulted within their facilities. So we challenged that. And when we challenged that, what happened is Uh, My mother called me and she said, Monica, everything that they said happened, happened. She said, but it was so shocking that these people that we all knew and loved and respected were collaborating in this way that even I was stunned and didn't say anything until the meeting was over. So I said to her then, I said, Mama, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to write the national NAACP, the state, the regional And I'm going to bring all of you up on charges as having violated the bylaws of the NAACP. So Mm -hmm. I didn't even leave my mama out. I feel that. 
But I said to her also, Mama, what you may want to do is you may want to publicly resign and state what happened for the record so that, therefore, you can clear your name. But if I don't name you, then it would be nepotism. And she said, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't respect you. So I'm just saying, this is not personal, and this is why I try to really walk lightly in Detroit around relationships and kinships, is I respect those boundaries, but I also must tell Detroiters, when we continue to create these optics, those optics align us. And the leveraging of our community credibility and the leveraging of a lot of people that don't have a lot of money, but their voices count with their communities, then you're lending your credibility to that individual. And we've got to decide where our lines are. I I wholeheartedly agree. And um, not only with agreeing with that, I I mean, kind of not, it's not even Wendell Anthony per se, but I'm using him in example. But Mm -hmm. it's just the, it's the, if you know someone's going awry, you can still have a lot of, you know, you know, the road, as they say, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. At at one point in time, you know, and and you have to just reconvene. But even this whole idea of what leadership is to me and and wanting to be in control, sometimes you have to step back and, and put yourself in a vulnerable position. At one point in time, uh, on a pulse of the issues in the in the 80s and some of the 70s, the stories I hear about Wendell Anthony, he was a leading forward thinker on it. That's but right. as of right now, the things that are happening and how they're happening, he's not in those same positions, even as brilliant as he is in understanding systems. So it's not even just so. So many people and I'm not necessarily saying, old, oh, get out the way, but you do have to but be understanding. That. But of, why not say that we do not build plans of secession? Hmm. Hmm. We do not do secession planning. Mm-hmm. And then what we have is we have people that still need a check. Yeah, you're a And so up. when you're seeking checks, then principles tend to go by the wayside. And mm-hmm. this is where we're struggling. You know, I, I was at a meeting the other day with the Council of Baptist Pastors, and I said to a couple of pastors after it was over that there needs to be a convening of churches around the stormwater drainage issue because the drainage fee is a fictitious fee. It's a made-up fee to be able to fill the coffers of DWSD in Gliwa. But at the same time, you do have too many churches. And so if you were just looking at it from a business model, it would be worth some of these clergy sitting down together and looking at consolidating their church uh, memberships. But the egos, I think, of But this the is where we come back to. Yeah. And the same is the case, I would say, with Wendell Anthony and many of our leaders right now that are still sitting in seats of prominence, is that whom else are they grooming? Whom else are they preparing yeah. to step into those seats? And one of the problems that we found and why we, the people of Detroit, is committed to youth leadership now building is that we recognize that youth are ready to lead now. They're leading Many times what we do is we become the clog in the wheel because the way they leave may not be the way that we were taught to lead. I agree. And so when we don't create these intersectional opportunities and these nexuses for our babies to be a part of these convenings, my grandmother didn't send us to play. We were in those meetings when she was challenging the mayor. We were in those meetings when she was negotiating with clergy. So these are Mm -hmm. the reasons that we understood that there was a hierarchy of respect But I can respectfully disagree with you and tell you you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you could do the same for me. 
But this so this just sort of letting it just float in the air as to anybody black is right for Detroit. That's not true. I agree. And the fact that all white folks coming in is great for Detroit. That's not true. I agree. But anything that is not going to give us the proper analysis is not going to afford us the proper planning to be prepared for what's next. I agree. And um, yeah, I mean, on that same issue, another great Northwestern cult at one point in time on the pulse of the people. Uh, and it and and I, I, I struggle, but it's kind of like a, a, a an example of uh, <laughs> black people, period, uh, the, the black existence in today. Like of like, it's not all good. It's not all bad. But I definitely can say that the tragedy of John Conyers isn't even necessarily him stepping down. It's the fact that he was in office that long. And the only person that he could support was his son that he knows. And I know the third. He is not he he's not of the ilk of of people that have worked in his office of a Yolanda Lipsy, of a Kim Trent of a Joanne Watson. And it's like, it's like that, that backwards thought process while That's still right. honoring the like, okay, you've done all of this great. That's you know right. what I'm saying? It's sort of like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like it, it'd be like me seeing Michael Jordan at the pop shop machine with your, with your son. And he just losing the pop shot. It's like, damn, that's Michael Jordan. How can he not make these baskets? Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like, it doesn't take away the bulls legacy of Michael Jordan. Nope. But it's like, I would assume he could come to the arcade and be killing people, but he's missing. Right. And it's a lot of that as you talk about people in positions within leadership, which breaks the frailty to me of the structure of what of what the black power at one point in time was 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 uh, was standing for. I mean, that the shrine of the black Madonna's um, say it center right now. Say it. They're they're kicking people out and it's closing. You would think that that would stand as tall as the Sphinx has stood in Egypt for forever when you think of the leadership and the people that it's connected to. And I know just the personal bags of whatever, but the Shrine of the Black Madonna since the 1980s has been really connected to every political uh, political hierarchy in 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 Southeast Michigan. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the training center where people lived, the, 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 the fundamental piece mm-hmm. of where it started has now gone to the wayside. Most people don't even know. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. I mean, I find it interesting when I go out into the communities, I'll meet folks that think Councilmember Watson is still sitting on council. That's how out of touch our community is in terms of what's happening downtown. Uh, you've got to remember how systematically, and I know you recall this because the citizen was still vibrant mm. at this point, of how they being uh, intentionally disconnected the people from uh, being able to view the council. And then you had also the council shrink itself from being on every day where it was actually a, a media machine, a messaging machine. Yeah. Of getting information out. People, yeah, people would come with their council. flyers yeah, yeah, to yeah. tell you where the barbecues were and the community meetings. So when you lost those critical pieces of communication, and now thank God that you're doing uh, the blogcast because we don't have talk radio uh, to the degree we once had it. I have to remind people that Frankie Darcell is in Philadelphia. She's not in Detroit, mm. uh, even though she's giving commentary.
commentary on Detroit. She's not here. Uh, you've got a lot of syndicated shows that are outside of mm-hmm. the bubble, so to speak. And then you don't have those uh, those mouthpieces, those those uh, drum beats like you had with Martha Jean the Queen, like you had with Wake Up Detroit, Joanne Watson. You know, mm-hmm. you're, uh, you don't have the Michigan citizen. You don't mm-hmm. have those components that gave you an alternative narrative that was centered in black liberation and black power. Now, as we talk about that in, in the structure of it, the fight for water and the work you're doing with water, and you're actually traveling to Minneapolis, uh, this is definitely the season to travel to Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're traveling to Minneapolis uh, like tomorrow or so. Yeah. So um, what's what's happening in this fight for water? And what do we need to know as everybody's rates are going up and up and up? If you are a Detroiter and you pay for water, it's getting real. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. probably it probably been if you real. have a shack yeah it's been real but it's getting real real now because it's like whoa if you got a shack it's probably a hundred dollars just flat fee just gonna hit you like bam oh yeah oh, so yeah. what's happening with water in the city of detroit well what folks have got to remember is that we provide water to 125 municipalities and townships 3.8 million michiganders drink from detroit's well Uh, We are sitting in the largest hepatitis A outbreak in American history. You also have us now inundated with Legionnaires at Wayne State. This is Mm. our third episode. Uh, And then you're looking at over 111,000 households have been shut off from water since 2012. Mm. And so knowing that and knowing that the city of Detroit in 2005, under the leadership of Michigan Welfare Rights, the People's Water Board, Charity Hicks, uh, Ancestor Charity Hicks, and the legislative leadership of Marianne Mahaffey and the Honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson, uh, the city of Detroit actually authored a water affordability plan. Uh, It was never made into an ordinance. It was just a resolution. But we did author the first water affordability plan in the nation. You now see Philadelphia, Baltimore, the entire state of California has adopted a water affordability plan. It's it's been real in California for water. Oh, yeah. It's going to be even more real because uh, they're coming this way. My (laughs) uncle has has some, uh, he has a couple coins to the side. But when I go visit him, he's like, hey, make sure that shower (laughs) is a good four minutes. It's like, damn. He got like you on the time timer. in the show. Like, Whoa, it's real. Is that real? I uh, get a hotel room just to shower. <laughs> and so we've got that issue, but then you've got uh, you've got another eighteen thousand folks this this year, eighteen thousand households, potentially forty five thousand people that are going to be shut off over the next weeks and the next mm. two two to two and a half months. And so given what we know in terms of infectious diseases, also what we know in terms of the demographics of poverty in this city, to continue to shut off water is actually going to make the problem worse for people that can afford their water right now. Because the fewer people you have paying into the system, the more it's going to cost the rest of us that can't pay. And then along with that, like always, my number one gripe with a lot of this is, okay, the inhumanity is water is a... uh, you know, it's, you need that to live. That's right. So it's a natural resource. It's like charging for air. So, all right, let's say I'm not really paying for the water. What I'm paying for is the structure. The structure of the of the Detroit water system, as much as the, 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 the sewage treatment plant is great, 
the the pipes the 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 sewers you've talked to me a little bit about this and i've heard other speeches and i mean it makes perfect sense just in just the flow of of natural dynamics so like it's four houses that definitely have water off because they have the uh you know when you see the the blue the spray painted blue w and then a slash mm -hmm. and a o that means water's out the blue so mark it, of shame is yes, what we call if you, it <laughs> if you ever drive through detroit and you wonder what's up with these blue blue marks it's like that means that their water has been shut off now with that Water is is moving on pressure, PSIs. I'm not going Bill Nye the Science Guy on you, but <laughs> it kind of flows better if it flows everywhere. Yes. So now I may be pulling more pressure to come through these old pipes, and I don't know when they put these pipes down. I assume it definitely was not in the 60s. I think these pipes probably have been that. I mean, like, patchwork over time, and I know the water department has, like, this is one of the least staffed water part water departments in America. Mm -hmm. um, so you 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 and then you have some houses as they're tearing down these houses or whatever, and like Brightmore or something where you have a house like maybe I don't know maybe seventy five yards from another house. Mm -hmm. So to push that water through, what is that doing for the pipes? Well, and that's our concern. If you look at the system, DWSD was built in the 1900s, uh, and it actually was acquired. So I said 1950s, so in the 1900s. In 1900. So it's still some pipes in the ground. Yes. That right. basically were, were built before people even had automobiles. Like, yeah. Damn, this is yeah. <laughs> and some <laughs> of those pipes date back to the late 1800s. Some so of those pipes. Buggy, buggy transportation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, Detroit's Water and Sewage Department actually predates the city of Detroit. Uh, wow. And when you look at what was happening at the in, the in this part of the country, but in the nineteen hundred in nineteen hundred, the official establishment of Detroit Water Works uh, was codified. But let me let me for the person listening to this, as my dad always says, I like your interviews because you always stay present with it. But I want you guys to understand this in the in nineteen hundred. Meaning the, the pipes that we're using in 2018, people did not have telephones. Meaning if you communicated with somebody, you had to go up to them or send a letter. <laughs> you, you weren't driving to the other side of town. You were walking or buggying or horseback riding. Mm -hmm. Or if you had a donkey, <laughs> you were donkeying. That's right. So these systems predate even the, the structure of the roads. Mm -hmm. Definitely the freeway system. That's right. As this freeway was the first one right here at Davidson. And my mom even tells me, it's funny, I got a picture of my mom and my auntie <laughs> like running over the Davidson, like as they were building it. <laughs> so it's like a really old picture. But even breaking of that, you know, so these have to be <laughs> definitely strong, but it was structured to where it was ideal that, oh, Every all these houses will have water. Some of the pipes are made out of wood logs, mm. logs that were hollowed out and made into the shape of a a cylinder uh, system. So like a tree. So you have yes, you have pipes that are still operating today within the DWSD system that are actually wood logs. And. And this really brings the, the, the reality of the tragedy of Flint to the forefront because the, when everything was happening and they were talking about what could be done, what could be done, I'm like, what they have to do. And I mean, this is just common sense. You have to 
shut off the water, provide, put, repipe everything. And then during that time, give, you know, ship in other water through like a series of water towers. And to do this will probably be billions of dollars. Nope. All they had to do was use what's called a PU unit, which is what the military uses mm. when they're out in the jungle or out in, in mm. um, very desolate conditions to be able to purify and clarify water. So this unit actually to, even will purify and clarify radioactive water. So to, so purify, that's how you think, even for the water here. Do you think we'll ever see, because in my mind, it's like, will we ever see, d does any American city, and I'm talking about New York or like, let's say even Dubai or whatever, any, any city in the world have enough money for what it takes to repave a whole city structure worth a sewer system? Yes, we do. Detroit, okay. Detroit uh, not only had enough money, it still would have the money if there was a restoration of the dollars that were commandeered and taken during the bankruptcy. Uh, when you look at the fact that during the bankruptcy, Detroit's debt could have been restructured and it would have created a cost savings of anywhere from a third to half. Uh, mm -hmm. What we should have been looking at is somewhere in the ballpark of about $2.2 billion returned to the citizens of Detroit. And that uh, would be enough to cover because this is a big city. That would well, be enough it's to not cover. just that. You also need equity in terms of the 1813 split. You've got Detroit paying for 78 municipalities the cost of maintaining their wastewater systems. And so when Detroiters, uh, given the demographics of our city, we, were, we built a system with the capacity of 2 million people. Now we're down to about 718,000 people. Uh, and then 49% of those folks are living in abject poverty. Then you don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to sustain that system under those, uh, those demands. Mm -hmm. So now we're at a point where we've got to be able to go back and renegotiate our debt. That never happened. The bankruptcy was actually levied against us to take our asset, when in actuality, if we were ever properly compensated for the water system, then we should have been sitting down and brokering to sell off and spin off those outer infrastructural components so that we're not continuing to subsidize the suburbs. But Detroit right now, uh, if you look at on a national scale, we're talking about it's going to take $3 trillion to do all the necessary upgrades to the water infrastructure across the country. The government has only allocated $1.74 trillion. What that should say to all of us is they've already decided who will drink and who will not. When you look at urban cores, urban cores all across this country are dealing with large infrastructures that no longer has the population to sustain them. And then you, even with the influx of young people that you're seeing coming into community, it's still not going to be sustainable for these old systems because the largest part of their debt is either through legacy debt or is through the processing of wastewater. Usually about anywhere from two, a third to two-thirds of your cost is directly based on the cost of dealing with your wastewater. We can actually remediate our wastewater with something called a QUIRC, a Community Energy Resource Center, where we divert our wastewater into these systems to create and generate energy. You can generate electrical energy, thermal energy, uh, gray water uh, usage, and then also fertilizer out of the solid waste being dried out. 
So why are we, aren't we doing these more uh, economically sound kinds of initiatives, but also revenue generating forms of initiatives? So revenue generating, yes. resource generating, yes, and also sustainability, uh, yes. sustainable and environmentally safe. Yes. It's more so information. When you came here and you saw that it's lots of land that I have. Anybody that's come to the incubator, and I welcome anybody to come, check it out. But I have some lots. It's you know, super dope. I'm paying, uh, <laughs> Lord knows, I'm paying drainage fees. But uh, but you were like, yeah, you can put like the water tanks. And I'm really starting to think about this as I have a house behind me. And the number one reason we don't activate that house is because of the plumbing situation. Mm. But it has one of those old school. I mean, it's so old. It has one of the old school toilets where the water tank was on top and everything. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe we can try to figure out how to work something like yes. this. So transitioning, what should residents such as myself? Because all I know is the rates are going up. Mm -hmm. I'm smart enough to realize that I've never seen a water crew put in a sewer. Never in my life. (laughs) You know, I've seen DT. I've seen AT&T. I've seen DTE. I've seen Comcast. I've never seen that put down. I'm even seeing people put, you know, the the fiber. Fiber Fiber optics. Yeah. So. What what can I do to protect myself? What what can the average citizen do in this fight? Well, I think first of all we got to understand we do have power and our power is in a couple of places. One is I would suggest that every homeowner uh get their water tested inside their home so that you know what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's similar to getting on an airplane, you don't put on somebody else's mask until you put yours on first. And so what we want people to know is that you have legislation that has come down the pipe called the LCR rules. This is the lead copper rules. This is what's dealing with some of the issues that are pervasive in Flint around the damaged pipes within the infrastructure. But then what we need family to know is how Flint and Detroit is going to be hurt by this policy. And we're expressing this at every water table we're on across the country, is that even if your pipes are restored up to the easement of the street and your house, you're going to be responsible as the homeowner for the restoration of those pipes inside your home. And so right now you have Flint homeowners that are levied with a cost of anywhere from eight to $24,000 to repair the lead pipes and, and remove them and abate them within their homes. Well, for most working families, they don't have that kind of dough just sitting around. You got that right. I would say most Americans in general. general. Even even the ones bringing in a lot of, you know, expendable eight Gs Oh, yeah. You know, so this is going to force instability and displacement at a greater level for not only folks in Flint but in Detroit. Uh, also, what I would say to folks right now, there is a major opportunity for anyone that's been impacted by the illegal foreclosures because it wasn't just the illegal assessments that were levied against Detroiters. It was also unaffordable water rates. And so uh, what we've suggested to Detroiters is to please take advantage of this very short window of time between uh, July, uh, what's today, the 5th yep. and 6th and July the 13th. There's a short window of time where you can go to the United uh, um, Housing Coalition 
and be able to participate in a workshop to buy your home back for $1,000. And they do have a fund for about $295,000 where they will levy those dollars to help you get your home back. Hmm. Uh, This won't help families that have already lost their homes in the last couple of years, but it will help families right now that are in in, uh, present jeopardy of losing their homes. And it will help families for the next three years, those that qualify for a tax abatement. Uh, mm-hmm. But we had in 2014 15,000 houses ushered into foreclosure just because of unaffordable water. They paid their taxes. They couldn't afford the absorbent water bills. And then the other thing that I would say to folks is understanding the policies that are most critical to ensuring that everybody has a human right to water. And that policy would be uh, the water affordability plan. And let's be clear, it's not about free water. And, of course, me, uh, with my rebel self, I would agree with providing free water. But what we know is that because it does cost something once water it goes through the system and it's clarified and purified, what we are suggesting is to take a page out of Roger Colton's book, who is uh, an economist, and he was the expert that advised Councilmember Watson and the Honorable Marianne Mahaffey, as well as uh, Michigan Welfare Rights and others, that in 2005, if we created a water affordability plan, what it would mean is that for low-income persons that are qualified under the federal guidelines lines of meeting the poverty at 200% or lower, somewhere in that 150 range, that they would qualify for a reduction in their water where it would not cost them more than 3.5% of their income to be able to access water. You have Detroiters and people in Flint paying anywhere from 20, from 10 to 20% of their income to access water. And Mm -hmm. so this is going to drive more people out of the city. This is going to drive more people out of home ownership. This is going to become a major driver of the infectious diseases that we warned of in 2015. And we reported on last year with Wayne State uh, Law School and Detroit Equity Action Lab is that we are continuing to exacerbate the low level uh, performances of our government while at the same time we're putting our citizens in jeopardy Mm -hmm. and nobody's speaking to the correlations of these issues. Hmm. You're you're laying it on. You're laying it on. And with that all, how do people get in contact with you? How do people support? How do people um, connect? If people want to support the work of We the People of Detroit, uh, we are uh, on Facebook. We're on Twitter. On Twitter, it's at We the People D-E-T. We the People D-E-T. And then mm-hmm. we, of course, we have a, a web page, wethepeopleofdetroit.com. Uh, also, you can reach out to us on any of those uh, systems and communications networks. And we would love to plug you in. We have a youth uh, social justice component. Uh, so if you're a young person that's seeking to get more socially involved and you have uh, thoughts about how to improve the city, we want to bring you in and definitely make you a part of our leadership pipeline. If you are a person that has time to volunteer, we are constantly doing what is called water shifts, moving water out into the community. We have a new water station over in Brightmoor with Pastor Roz and the Brightmoor Connection. Uh, That food pantry has become a major hub in terms of women being able to sustain themselves and their families with food and water. Uh, We also do work uh, at a state level, uh, as I said, around the human right to water in policy. And so you have the People's Water Board that we are part of that coalition that meets on the second Tuesday of every month at the Cass Commons at 530. 
Uh, you also, if you're in need of support in getting your water restored or need of identifying where there may be other pots of resources to help you restore your water, we would suggest that you call our Water Rights Hotline. That number is one eight four 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 two water one eight four 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 two water and our water director is Cecily McClellan. Cool. That works. That works. Yeah. Now I got the classic three Detroit is different questions. Uh oh. <laughs> um, first question What was your very first car What year make and model And what year did you get it Ooh, My fir- very first car was a uh, 1968 Volkswagen Super Beetle Oh man Okay what year did you get it I got it in 1985 Oh man, it had some it had some days on it. Yeah, it, it was yellow with an orange door. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it last? That car lasted me about three and a half years. Okay, so it, it has some it yeah. still has some motion. It cost five hundred dollars. <laughs> you remember the first place you went when you got it? Uh the first place I went was to work. Okay. First place I went was work. I had just gotten a job with Roast Chemical Company down in Burlington, North Carolina. And I'd mm. just gotten out of Bennett College, so I was excited about a job and a car. <laughs> okay, there you go. At three years, hey, three years out of a car that had some days on. Oh, uh, you would not believe I actually took uh, six football players home in that car one night. That was like y'all were like uh, the clown car or something. Oh, that's like. yeah. It, it was it was funny seeing these huge guys untangle themselves and get out of the car. It was like that scene in uh, in public in Police Academy yeah. with tall, two tall Jones. Just like that. Just like that. We had to unpack each time we let somebody out. Hilarious. <laughs> hey, I guess if you need a ride, you need hey, a ride. I was doing the best I could. It was like, hey, it's better than walking. Yeah, come on, yeah, I'll I, I lap up on a dude. I don't care. Yeah, they put the punter in the trunk. <laughs> That's messed up. <laughs> That's messed up. All right. Um, if you're the DJ, it's the end of the fireworks. You get to play mm. three songs. Woodward and Jefferson. What three songs are you playing? Oh, Woodward and Jefferson. Uh. I would have to pay, play Frank, Frankie Beverly and Mays. Which song? Thank you. Okay. I would have to play the Isley Brothers. Oh God, I love everything by the Isley Brothers. I would have to. I'd have to do Fight the Power. Okay. And then I would definitely have to do the Queen of Soul, uh, huh. Bridge Over Troubled Water. Oh man! Which is what I was listening to this morning before. Ain't I came that something? In. That's a that's a great one right oh, there. Oh my gosh! I was listening to her and Nina Simone. Nina mm. Simone was doing uh, "Take Me to the Water." Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that water thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's some power in that water thing. <laughs> it will uh, exercise it. Many people don't know that Detroit has a perfect current for generating hydrogen uh, power. Mm. And we have never been able to take full advantage of it, even though Mary Young was able to get the science to prove it. Uh, there has not, never been the political will at the region and the state level for us to exercise it, mm. which would have been another way for Detroit to be able another to maintain its solvency. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. Okay. Very last question. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? If I could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Ooh, gosh, so many amazing folks. 
I guess I would have to say Mother Irma L. Henderson. Hmm. Okay. And the reason I'd have to say her is because I consider her to be a major uh, influence on my mentor, which is uh, one of my mentors is the Honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson. But I think one of the, th- the things that I treasure most about Mother Henderson is I have a, uh, I was gifted by Councilmember Watson with a series of her spoken words and tapes. Hmm. Uh, and some of the conversations are between she and Paul Robinson and mm-hmm. and just all of these great figures. And I remember her giving her speech at her birthday party where she talked about we are not alone. Hmm. And I think her groundedness in faith and her clarity in terms of uh, standing strong for Detroiters, even sometimes when people saw her as adversarial to Mayor Young. Mm-hmm. And I think because he's such a given in terms of his his status and his impact, and I don't think as many people know about her influence and how she was that that rod sometimes that that held him accountable from the people's perspective, I would have to say that she is very much due uh, to be named on that strip of Woodward. I'm with it. As you know, she was uh, a big homie to my big homies. <laughs> so that's always good. Um, that's always good. This was fun. We will definitely get you back. We're going to be talking more about Information and information. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kyrie Frazier. Yep. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.